Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Uh, so our guest today is Mr. Jack Bugen. He is the director of McKinsey Global Institute and a senior partner at McKinsey. Uh, we're going to have a conversation about globalization and equality, some of the really fascinating reports published by McKinsey Global Institute, MGI, uh, as well as Mr. Bugin's uh, vision for our world today. So again, really, really big questions ahead of us uh, at Policy Punchline, as usual. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today in, a, in an interview, Mr. Bugin. Thank you. <laughs> you are one of the three global co-directors of McKinsey Global Institute and lead research on global economic and technology uh, trends, among many other topics. Uh, would you mind first giving us a quick overview of MGI and your work there? Sure. Uh, so MGI is the McKinsey Global Institute. Uh, it's one of the private think tanks uh, sponsored by McKinsey and Company. Uh, it's actually independent in the sense that we have a board of directors composed of senior partners, and the senior partners actually uh, are part of my board, so part of uh, the board of the three directors of, uh, of MGIs. And we basically every year sense different themes that we believe are quite critical for the economics, and we go and run with that. We're pretty proud of saying that we've been there for about 20, 25 years now. We started in looking at productivity uh, for one major reason. Uh, productivity was pretty much looked at from a very macro standpoint, labor productivity, capital productivity, you name it. Uh, but nobody had a very clear view from uh, the enterprise to industry level to industry to macro level. So we tried to bridge all that by the simple token that as McKinsey, we've got a lot of inside view within companies about how they actually do things and how they actually produce things, which leads to productivity. Now we have extended that to many teams because Economics is not only about productivity, it's about welfare, it's about globalization, you name it. All teams that are not only important on the socioeconomic background, but are actually very important teams for any CEO to thrive in complex world of economics as they stand today. So those teams actually, some that we like, but also you cannot be a good CEO or a good management team if you don't have a perspective about these teams that are sometimes ahead of or possibly coming in 10 years time, but you need to get that foresight. And usually strategic planning was doing that in the past. Today, strategic planning is actually too short and usually we don't look at the context of the socioeconomics. Now, as I say, we, have, we, we pride ourselves to have been doing the MGI for about 25 years, but we have been as well ranked as the number one think tank uh, uh, from a private setting for actually in three years in a row. Uh, by the Wharton School. So we're pretty proud of that, which yeah. means that some people think that we do good work. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the themes and trends that MGS currently particularly fo focused on these days uh, in addition to productivity? Yes. So, uh, uh, again, productivity is one theme that you can get productivity from efficiency. Uh, I'm personally more interested in productivity coming from growth, uh, and growth is actually an important theme. Uh, there is no secret we need to look today at not only capital and labor productivity, we need to look at resource productivity and the way we use it, not only from a pollution point of view, but from a depletion point of view. So we do a lot of things linked to natural resources. Uh, labor market, uh, you know, most of us, uh, we are 
looking at labor market as uh, being functioning or not, but it seems like uh, it's likely to change dramatically and it has been changing dramatically. So labor market is an important uh, uh, discussion point in, in things we do. Uh, and obviously any market. So financial markets is definitely something that we keep looking at it. Uh, it's very important to understand what's happening in terms of debt leverage, in terms of equity markets and the like. And last but not least, uh, obviously uh, uh, technology is very important. And, and technology is very important for three reasons that people tend to forget. The very first one is that technology is, nobody produce it except a few companies. So it's actually a, a broader concept. Uh, usually with technology, you can do product, you can do process, you can improve lifestyle, you can improve so many things, or you can do it bad, okay? So it's actually much more versatile than any other topics that you can imagine. And, and technology, uh, depending on who you are, uh, can be quite uh, scary or can be overly uh, exciting. And so finding the right balance between these two worlds of techno-pessimistic and techno-optimistic is a theme that is obviously something that we had to jump into it. And, and last but not least, I think you, you know where I'm going to, which is, uh, it's important that we stand back and look at all the levers. And one of the levers is important. It's not only globalization, but it's what's happening within each of the country. And obviously we see very different profile of evolution of economics between cities, big cities, smart cities, and countryside. And it's a topic that we have picked. Now, that does not mean we picked all of them equally. It depends on uh, the interest, the topic of the day, if you like. Uh, and maybe you have all the topics that you want to jump into it, that you want to give me as interesting topic to jump into it. I can imagine at least two or three we are looking at. Health, biology, I think it's important because it's getting there. Engineering, engineering more and more is not a tool to use in economics. It's actually influencing economics a, a lot. And last but not least, uh, it's important from a, not geopolitics point of view, but from a nation point of view, uh, it's important that we look at the sociology of countries once more. Uh, China welfare model, China push model is radically different from what the Asia Tigers that we have looked at in the 1980s were. Right. Uh, and it's important that we look at that because today everybody's talking about China. Uh, there are so many themes to cover. So why don't we just start with uh, some of the basic yes. factors in globalization, like business growth. I mean, I just read this research report uh, MGI published in April titled, What Every CEO Needs to Know About Superstar Companies. And what you guys basically did was analyzing around 6,000 of the world's largest public and private companies, which together make up around 65% of global corporate earnings. And you found that top 10% of those companies make up 80% of positive economic value, which is quite astonishing um, how the concentration of economic value has persisted and enlarged over the years and the smaller firms just seem to be uh, unable to catch up. So what do you make of all this? Do you see this as the part of the global trend of rising inequality um, or, or do you simply think this is economy of scale and, and progress? A very good question. Uh, let me stand back into one, one element you said, which is rising inequality. Uh, first of all, what the analysis was showing is simply that it's amazingly tough to beat the market. Uh, when we take the matrix of economic profit is the ability of generating return above the return 
above the cost of capital. And that cost of capital is basically the benchmarks against which you have to take risk. Now, the fact that some companies are able statistically to be able to beat the market is quite unusual because, as you have seen from your finance course, usually you cannot beat the market, markets are efficient. But we see that companies do that. Now, by definition, it's difficult to beat the market. You're going to always have only a few companies that, that, that is able to do it. So that's why we got this kind of inequality perceptions. But what is interesting is not necessarily the superstar, as we call them, it's also the fact that we have as many companies that really stick around despite that they kill, actually, the economic profit. They are beyond the return of capital, and capital, in a free world, should be reallocated somewhere else. By the way, people should be reallocated somewhere else as well. We don't necessarily see that. That's the first observation. So look at this, at this thing from how can, you, how can the world be not the classical distribution where the average is what we look at? Well, we say the average doesn't beat the market, but we got two extreme situations. You know, some that we call superstar, I think it's a good marketing term, <laughs> and some that we call uh, maybe the, the, the fragile companies or the ones that actually are likely to be disappearing if they don't move the needle significantly. Now, on that curve, scale matters, obviously. But scale by itself is not enough. It's not volume, it's actually how you innovate, how to do many things that we've found out as being quite interesting. So the, 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 the fundamental point here is really to say, look, when you look at the economics of growth, uh, you can be average, you can be just rewarded from your average, or you can be extreme, but extreme is difficult. And by the way, it's a contestable side. 50% of these companies can be at risk of falling apart. That's why you would never seen in my report, no report, the list of these companies. We're just too scared that in two years' time, 50% of them won't be there. So what we look at is this 10%, but really looking at them in such a way that uh, what are the key elements that are new to make them sustainably superstar? And by the way, we try to look at the factors as well, and I will give you a bit of that insight because it's net, not published yet, how to get rid of being in the wrong set of the curve. Uh, we find three uh, fundamental elements. Uh, one is that it's not about you. It's about you being part of an ecosystem. And more and more, we see that firms that strive to be superstar are basically part of an ecosystem of cities, skills, capital, an ecosystem of all the things together that actually helps you to thrive. You can get new skills, you can get uh, a new scale, you can get new smart capital, you can get uh, R&D investment. That ecosystem plays well. That's why we see these companies in the technology area being clusters around San Francisco. If you think about biotech, it's gonna be Boston. And if you think about whatever sectors, we see that cluster is happening. So being part of that cluster is amazingly important. Second point is that it's no longer about the first revolution. It's no longer about, you know what, capital, the, the, the classical workflow of, of a plant, well-organized, like, it's good. It's no longer that. It's intangible capital. By intangible capital, I mean, how do you create 
fantastic product and new innovations out of your R&D, how you basically use digitalization and all these software technologies to actually create new ways to tap into new customer base and you name it. That is what these companies do fantastically well. And this is why scale plays on their side. Because in digital, you've got global platforms, you can run it and run much faster than in the past. You have to realize that if you happen to work in the media industry, it took 60, 70 years for Disney to diversify outside of the United States at a point where today is pretty much 20 to 30, 40% maybe of their revenue coming outside of the US. Now, take the same metrics for Google, like it, it, it happened in less than 10 years. So you see how digital can help scaling that. And last but not least, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, important, yes, there are a few industries where it's easier to be a superstar. You know, pharmaceuticals, uh, digital sectors, uh, ICT sectors and the like. And I know where you're going. You can say, well, but this superstar sector have of obviously supranormal profit because they beat the market, of course. Yeah, but again, these are quite contestable. Uh, in one way, uh, superstar is about metabolism. It's about playing how to compete. It's a lot about management skill, uh, strategic planning, ecosystem and the like. That's what we see coming. So the report of the superstar here is to say, superstar is a lot about scalability. And this is why I call them superstar. Because the analogy of superstar is not firms. Superstar is usually a term that you use a lot in media for artists or in sports. And these guys usually are superstar because they get something, I would say in French, of je ne sais quoi, uh, of being extremely skilled in sports, <laughs> extremely clever in terms of talent. And in fact, this is the point. Superstar, it's an agglomeration of an ecosystem of talent that makes this company being there. When we look back at the unlucky companies there, the surprising thing is that some of them used to be superstar and fall from their rank. Why? You know, sometimes, like in sports, you have a bad year. So that's why these companies are not necessarily disappearing the next day. But if you are not going to be as skilled as you were, and you continue not to be there, there's a high danger that that portion is going down. The consequence is very, clear, is, is very consequential. If these two things extreme start to be more and more apart, the game of talent is actually going to play even stronger in the future because it's all about management skills, skill of capital, skill of human skills, uh, skill of smart uh, 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 capital and technologies. How do you play them together in a kind of what we call ecosystem or platforms that makes these things to glue and make them successful? Either you have it or you're not. I think a lot of people would agree with you saying, you know, when you got a big corporation like Facebook or Google, they simply attract the best talents, right? The, the, the best of the best want to go to Google X. They want to go to McKinsey and Goldman Sachs. Um, so, so, but there are also people who say, our world is becoming so much more diverse uh, that you don't need to go into a corporate hierarchy anymore. You can start your own company. You can start a small sustainable business. And we're seeing more of those as well. We're starting a very, 
a vibrant startup scene. So, so how do you see the, the tension? How do you reconcile those two? Do you recommend young people to still go into those superstar firms? Or do you think um, you know, trying out your new things in today's world is still a great learning experience? And well, I, I'm not going to give you advice about carriers, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, of course, just it's, in general, it's it's a uh, it's a fair question. So, uh, again, from a pure theoretical point of view, uh, Ronald Coase, uh, you know, a Nobel Prize in economics, uh, wrote this article in the 19, I think, 1937. So it's quite a long time. Why do firms exist? And the bottom line is that if the markets are so efficient, why do you need firms? And the bottom line is that firms exist because there are asymmetries of information. Now, with digitization uh, and information flows that are increasing by the day and densifying by the day, you're right. Why should we have very big conglomerates? Because at the end of the day, if information flows so efficiently, you should have an atomization of firms. And in fact, that's what we see. Even the global companies, if you look at them, they are no longer the classical global companies that you have seen uh, 20 years ago or 25 years ago when I said working in McKinsey. Uh, the reason being that, again, that information flow has basically broken down the silo. And more and more, they are moving from an enterprise that manages efficiently information inside from being slightly more cluster and managing information in and outside, so the ecosystem play. So in one way, I would say, why should you work for a big company and why should you work for a small company? Actually, we, you can work for both. You know, uh, your strategy, if you are, let's say, uh, an entrepreneur, is possibly to do something which is your own company and possibly the distribution of your products could be embedded in the global platforms of one of these large companies, so you are part of the family of a big company on top of it, so you can have the best <laughs> of the both worlds. So you can't really escape it, you know. Of because, course. Because, the, the, uh, so do you see this ecosystem keeping getting larger and larger, and as globalization con continues, we get more connected, and, and we'll just eventually live in this sort of world where basically we're controlled by a couple big ecosystems and we do our no, own things in there. Or? Again, at this stage, uh, there is a lot of controversy. Controversy is that there is a fear that this ecosystem will be fully controlled by a few players. Um, research that I've done, uh, not yet published, but I encourage you to look at it soon, uh, suggests that, in fact, there are a lot of small ecosystems. There are as many small ecosystems as large. You just don't notice them because they're not necessarily every day at the front page of the news. Uh, and two, a lot of companies actually can build ecosystem within very broad ecosystem, uh, which we tend to not look at. I will give you an example later on. And finally, a lot of companies, by cooperating into the ecosystem, can make actually much better money than not being part of an ecosystem. Let me give you a few examples. If you are a one-man uh, show uh, and you basically develop one product, call it shoes, and you want to sell them, 
you know that it's going to be very difficult to basically set up everything offline, to basically get reach across distribution across the US, whatever you, you want to do. Well, the next day, in one day, you can basically create an online shop, host it by an Amazon, could be an Alibaba, whatever, huh? but you can be running directly on the distribution scale that nobody else have, have done before. You know, why should you refuse? And by the way, here's the point. You can do it on Amazon, but you can, in technical term, being multi-homing, meaning you will also do it on Alibaba. So you can make them compete. <laughs> so the point is that multi-homing tells you that at the end of the day, you can counterbalance the power of these uh, powerful platforms. You know, if it's not exclusive, you can actually do a lot on your side. So again, it's a very important point I'm trying to make here, which is, don't look at the world as if there were a dichotomy. Platform, big, small, uh, small and possibly struggling. What I'm saying is that there is a new continuum being built. You can be a sub-platform into a platform. You can, as a small benefit from some of the assets of the platform called distribution, you can be multi-homing to benefit from, the benef from multiple platforms and make them com com compete. So what I'm trying to say is that the world is a continuum and there's very different new ways to compete. Now, I understand that this is fast, this is complex. This is very different from the classical economics that we know, because the economics that we know are based on fundamental classical economics, where the firm is this kind of cluster of internal efficient information that is not shareable, and you compete against each other. In the world of platforms, you cooperate, you multi-own, and it's a very different type of ball game. Competition is not the same flavor as yesterday. So speaking of global inequality, yeah. um, a lot of people say we need radical solutions. And this is like, maybe it's liberal democracy that's not working. Maybe it's the gridlock in the United States politics that isn't working. So, we need something drastic, maybe some new thinking. And there are professors in Princeton and across institutions all over the world who are writing books on, on new theories and new systems of thought. <clears throat> Is there any necessity, you think, to introduce more radical thinking at this point? Or do you think uh, our current way of addressing inequality is quite sufficient? Because a lot of people say, like, I just don't see a point of having, like, UN could do another mission. I, I just don't see, see, like, we're not seeing substantial change in global inequality. Or are those people kind of um, biased? Well, first we need to get the facts right. Uh, the, 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 facts is, the facts are, on the global scale, on the worldwide scale, inequality has actually declined. Now, if you remove China out of the equation, inequality has been pretty much flattish. Where inequality has increased is within countries. So it's not the global scale, it's within countries. And actually inequality has increased quite dramatically in a country like the US. And by the way, that's not new. It started back in the 1980s, okay? You have to realize that the inequality of the US in income, I mean, uh, if you look backwards, like in the 1920s, we're pretty much at the level, maybe even maybe lower than the level of some of the countries that we always call them as 
so much social democrat countries like Scandinavia. The inequality level was pretty much the same. It went down dramatically because of uh, you know, uh, all the innovation in, in the 1920s to 1980s. And then obviously capital markets started to increase and then finance started to deploy in the 1980s. And we saw the curve going up again in equality, coming especially uh, to the fact that when you have capital markets uh, that are scaling themselves on a global scale, you got this superstar element coming out, i.e. you re-benefit on the global scale, not on the local scale. And obviously that means more money for the person that basically is at the center of that gravity. So we saw that in the 1980s. It's nothing new. Uh, and I think it's important to make that point. Globalization is declining. It's increasing within countries. And it's increasing a lot in the last few years, indeed, but because of the crisis. And it has been rampant and increasing much more than any other countries in the United States. Just to give a perspective, in Europe, the top 20% of citizens will earn five times more than the bottom. In the United States, the range is possibly between 7.5 to 8. That's a very different type of model. Uh, so, to your questions, what should we do about that? Now, we have to be careful because it, there is always a tension between distribution and creation of value. You need to find the right model. If you say, I need to distribute everything at the expense of the top, but the top is actually the person who is the entrepreneur and basically make all the money for the economy, you have another trap. The trap is that you can be totally you know, equalized, but you have nothing to share. So it's always to look at both elements uh, that is important. In economics, uh, simplification has been the rule. The rule has been we care about the reallocation of, of resources. Welfare tend to be pretty much the outcome of the efficient market. And that means that pretty much economic activity growth is equal to the best welfare situation. That obviously is a model that requires extremely efficient market. Everything is flexible and the like. We know it's not the case. So I think it's a great time for economists to start to think about this friction, these new ways of thinking where actually the two questions are still very much related, but are not necessarily the same face of the same kind. Yes, there will be cases where growth leads to inequality, and it's possibly bad. There is a case where more equalitarian will limit growth and so on. So you need to look at this, the combination of these two elements, and there are four possibilities. Obviously, what we aim for is the one where inequality is decreasing and growth is increasing. That's the nirvana. Can we find it? Well, at this stage, it's difficult. But if you happen to know economics, economics are very careful. They look at, is there a model where I have Pareto improvement? Pareto improvements means that I can improve on growth without declining on, inequ uh, uh, on equality. And in fact, a, a lot of the academic studies, um, uh, Bedabu, for instance, an economist uh, uh, who happened to be at MIT, I think, uh, 
basically wrote a series of papers already in the late 90s, where it basically shows that the socioeconomic model of the US, which is pretty much production-driven, less redistribution-driven, versus the model of more redistribution and, 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 and less disparity at the production level, like the, like the Scandinavian model, there is no model that is better in absolute terms. But what is very important, so I cannot judge, but what is important is not whether they are good or bad. The question is that which one is the more resilient? So if you put a shock in the economy, is the US going to be more sustainable or create you know, a lot of turmoils at the extreme of the distribution versus the Scandinavian model? Today, the simulation by Ben Abu and a lot of the economists tend to suggest that the, the, the Scandinavian model is the one that basically is the most resilient one. And, and I think this is where I want to go, which is that in a world where there's a lot of uncertainty about what technology will do, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about skill distribution, there is a lot of uncertainty about the future of education and the like, it's possibly a better bet to have a resilient model than a non-resilient model. Because if this thing breaks, you don't know what's going to happen. And I want to reduce the uncertainty in the, in the socioeconomic model when there is a lot of uncertainty across the rest. That's the way I go. So it's about recognizing that there is global inequality and yes. asking certain right questions in more nuanced ways instead of just as you said, blame it on the big tech giants, or blame it on the big corporations, or um, addressing It's issues. time to, you know, again, these big corporations, as you call it, in my thesis, first, we call superstar 10% of the most global corporation. As you know, the world is possibly full of 200 million corporations, so let's not forget the rest, <laughs> okay? That's my point. And within the 10% of superstar, uh, I can tell you the data, uh, not necessarily coming out of our own research that you could, but uh, all the type of cut of research I've done uh, from a, the digital perspective, for instance. In digital, the top 10%, 87% are actually non-digital companies. They are big incumbents. 16% are digital native companies. You know, great startups that start to develop themselves into being great companies. And one or two percent are these very big platforms because there are 10, 20, 30 of them. That's all we have. So the point I'm making is that by solving this one, you know, these digital platforms, one percent of the total 10 percent, that, that's not necessarily the big driver of the economics. There is a huge long tail of things that needs to happen. And I think what people and society is calling for is actually, guys, can we get an agenda? Have how to create the best risk return or risk adjusted return path of growth of the future, which today is a fundamental question that we should address for one of these reasons. Before economics was very easy. The best return was also the lowest risk. That was the way the market works. What we find today is that that law of thermodynamics of the markets, that law of normal distribution, is likely not to be 
the one that will continue to thrive. And that means that the two elements are still related, but need to be coped with. So yes, we need to find ways to reduce inequality, but in the context of growth. What, what do you foresee as some of the challenges that will come up as uh, we try to reduce inequality and let less developed countries to catch up? Because yes. uh, a lot of people say that as global superpowers like the US or China or developed countries in Europe, because they accumulate so much technology uh, advancement and, and as they use AI or automation to improve their workforce, it would just be so difficult for developing countries and undeveloped countries to catch up because they just don't know how to use AI or, or they'll just be left out of this ecosystem that will be created by okay. uh, the more advanced countries. Do you agree with that type of opinion? So let me restate my point, which is global inequality, as I said, is the, is has been flattish. Right. So a lot of the inequality first is within countries, and within countries, there are many ways to reduce inequality. I think we need to find a new ways to recreate education and skills, uh, fundamentally. Uh, uh, the reason is very simple. Uh, you live longer, uh, and that means that if you start working at 25 and you're gonna be working until 70, you're likely to have multiple jobs and multiple skill needs. And within that environment, technology will possibly evolve so dramatically since what we have seen in the last few years that you're going to have to adapt to this technology. So we need this agility, this new skill type, this retraining and the like, which today is not part of a lot of the culture. It's staggering to see that today, even in large corporations, at best 10-15% of the people have training. 10 to 15%. Okay, that's amazing statistics. 85 don't have any training. Okay, that, that's the first point. On education, uh, you got education for so many years, and then it's as if you don't go back to university. Now, imagine a world of tomorrow where you go back to university at 40 years old for five years, get with all your buddies back, have a good time, but you know, with new type of tools, skills, and new sets of skills that you need to build for a, new, uh, a second life, we can imagine all that, but today, we have been so effective in the education system of the past that it's becoming an incumbent system. It's not fitted yet. And obviously the problem is that we need to recreate skill. And I cannot accept the fact that people say, well, some people with high school skill, they deserve what they are. No, a lot of people with uh, skills at the level of high school skills can do coding at 50 years old. The obvious reason is that why is coding so effective is because today you don't have to code it in the machine. You can play it as a game as a kid of eight years old because it's actually high level language done by the machine. So the, the, the level of technology that you need or the order of technology that you need to get above that threshold is actually much lower. So in fact, we can fundamentally change the skill and education system, that's one. The second point that you make, and I think it's an important point, well, you know, some people are ahead of the curve across countries, and they basically always win. It's difficult to get a catch-up and a convergence, as you mentioned. I just want to make a, 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 a very simple point that people tend to forget, because it's a biased view of media. Yes, 
US is supposed to be very good on the supply side of technology. Yes, China is actually investing dramatically into the supply side of this new type of technologies. Supply side is important, but what makes well-being growth? It's not the supply. It's obviously whether you're going to ingest these technologies on the demand side, i.e. companies will use this technology to diffuse that technology in workforce, in work system and the like, create new innovative products that create new productivity. So otherwise stated, if you think about healthcare, the fundamental growth in longevity and healthy life will come from the fact that some of the pharmaceutical companies, some of the digital natives in healthcare and the like, will actually use AI technologies to create new drugs, to discover new patents in, to big data. But that's the usage of this technology that leads to productivity. So the biggest important point is also how fast can you diffuse? And here's the interesting point. We always look at inequality in terms of the seed capital on the supply side, but one of the biggest inequality that we see is an inequality of diffusion. It takes a lot of time for this technology to be absorbed and to be diffused and into management skills of new products and the like. And there as well, the US is ahead, China not yet, uh, and that's the point. US is actually good because on the supply side, they are very good. And on the demand side, they tend to absorb this technology slightly faster than the average. So we need to think very hard about the diffusion of this technology as much as the production of this technology. This is something that most of people don't look at. And in fact, the biggest gap today that exists is, diffusion, is, is on the diffusion side across countries. That's a fascinating idea. And I imagine you must encounter a wide range of fascinating ideas at McKinsey Global Institute, but also a wide range of problems. So I'm very curious to hear your thoughts. Are, are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist? Um, how do you balance between all those problems and ideas that you receive every day? Well, uh, as I say, I'm, I'm just a I'm much more curious optimist. <laughs> uh, I, I try to solve problem, uh, and so uh, every problem should have a solution. Um, and so I'm just trying to look at issues, try to get from the issues to the facts and see what's happening. And again, uh, I learn by the day, I learn by every day, and uh, that's the way I should be, uh, because that's the work we do. We're trying to basically create fact base to help people structure at least a solution space of the, of the problem. So if you look at MGI itself, we're not there to give policy recommendation. Uh, it's not a role. Uh, we are pretty much creating the, the, the transparency of new facts that help people actually look at the problem in possibly a better way than they do. And this is where MGI has been very strong, is to create a bit of that transparency. Is to say, look, uh, 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 some of the hypotheses that economists do uh, possibly don't hold. So we have to look inequality on top of growth. Uh, the same thing when we look at the battle of technology uh, today, the debate is not on the supply side, the people forgot about the demand side, but 90% of the value comes from diffusion. 
So these are facts that we need to put back onto the table for decision makers to make decisions. And when I talk about decision makers, as I said, it's not only about politics in the sense of you know, politic, uh, policy uh, 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 governments or Jackson Hole type of, uh, uh, of bankers, it's actually <laughs> CEOs. CEOs themselves are today, in the words of asymmetry of information, needs to get these facts right. They could be mistaken by beliefs or by, call it not fake news, but distorted news because they don't have the fact base there. So our role is really to get these facts as much as we can. Now, we discover every day those facts are moving along. We do experimentation and you will see, for instance, in MGI we do a lot of artificial intelligence. And you possibly have noticed that we call it a, a series on AI because we don't know what we don't know. So we start by digging into us one aspect, then we add a second aspect, we revise. So we do the, the scientific research there. There are things that we say, that we say, we believe based on this fact it should be that, we're not sure yet. And then we, dig, we deep dive a bit more because it's an evolving agenda. And that's what I like a lot personally, as you said, which is, this is what science is about. It's about trying to get clarity on the facts, discover, lay out the facts, diffuse the facts so that people like you can read them and basically not necessarily need to agree with me, they need to agree with the facts, but at least that's part of our mission. Our mission is really to get that science out there so that people can get better informed the decision. I love the idea of transparency of new facts and, and I, I I was talking to, we were interviewing Professor Adam Tooze a few weeks ago, who was the author of the book, Crash, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. And he mentioned to me how MGI is just doing fascinating work these days as a private think tank. And partly because um, big corporations like Amazon or McKinsey have so much data on, on the world, on their clients, on companies, industries, and economists just really flock to places like yours to do very, very interesting works. So how is working in McKinsey Global Institute different from working in the academia <laughs> or, or at, at an investment bank research team or whatever? Uh, investment bank, I never worked there, so I cannot, <laughs> I, I cannot tell you. I can assume, but that's all I can do. Now, w one of, uh, 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 of my former colleagues at the time, he uh, he his former colleague because he's no longer at McKinsey, uh, his name is Thomas Copeland, and Thomas Copeland wrote the book Valuation. He, 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 if you look at investment banks, most of the valuation book is based on that <laughs> book. And, and Thomas Copeland is in academia, it was in academia as well before from the NYU. And when he joined McKinsey, he, he said to me, uh, what I like about McKinsey is being a kid in a candy store, because there's so, always something to eat and chew, because there's so much data, so much problems, so many clever people to basically do things. So that's the way I look at MGI and McKinsey, is that a bunch of driven person with a lot of data plucked together and MGI is really that. And it's, by the way, a management of a project. Uh, and that changed versus academia, where in academia, obviously there are teams, but usually people work by themselves. A lot of the data that we have, obviously, inside uh, data, uh, from different sources that we have, but a lot of the data is actually a lot of mashup of data that is out there that is not used. And the reason why it's not used is that 
we have a methodology by which we always try to look at a problem, break down the problem into issues, and get from the issue, say, what are the data I need to solve that problem? And so when we don't have the data, we look after that. And usually academia don't necessarily that process of breaking down a problem into issue trees, into issues and discovery and the like. And what I learned, and it's a personal statement I will make here, is that when I was in academia, I was extremely good in mathematics and writing very technical papers. And I took pride of publishing these papers, saying, wow, you know, I published that fascinating research with these 25 types of equations. But I look back at this paper and say, nobody read them, not because it was bad, but because the problems, or what I discovered was a nice theoretical problems, but with not so much of relevance. In the way we do things in McKinsey and MGI, we look at relevant problems, which means a lot of people are caring about these problems, which actually reinforce, again, the interest of working on this problem, but also raise the bar very high, because any statement that we made needs to be backed up by data, and by data that are sufficiently strong, such that I can fulfill my mission, and my mission being creating better transparency on complex problems for people to make better decisions. Do you have a particular worldview? This is a framework through which you look at, at the world. I mean, you've been McKinsey for, what, 27 years already, yes. and uh, you're obviously extremely successful when it comes to leading um, McKinsey Global Institute. So you must have a framework when it, lo looking at the world, right? Or yeah, everybody is a map of the world, obviously, <laughs> uh, and I get possibly more than one. Uh, in uh, my map of the world is actually, uh, uh, I, I don't know how to answer your question because I've got multiple maps. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I get a, you know, I get a business of wine, so I look at wine as a different way as the one in, the, in McKinsey. I love arts and the like. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an optimistic or humanist in the sense that I'm looking at, uh, at the world as not good, not bad, but as a journey where we should all optimize our potential. And uh, I believe that uh, uh, this is the way to go. So it has a lot of consequence, the consequences. So if you think about AI, for instance, I'm definitely inclined in experimenting and trying because I think AI can solve fascinating problems, especially if you think of healthcare. I believe that it will solve, I'm quite sure it will solve some of the fundamental uh, uh, issues we have in certain type of uh, little disease like cancer and the like, because we don't have enough of right information to diagnose and the like. I'm also looking at AI in saying we need an ethical AI. Why do we need ethics and AI? Because I don't want that AI is used for creating a new kind of a cyber crime or worse, war, uh, you know, warfare and all these things. So that consequence as well. But also humanist in the sense of saying, if you ask me, uh, you know, think about inequality. Inequality get, can go up two ways. It can go up because the top 20 makes more than the average. Or it can go up because the bottom 20 Makes goes lower <laughs> yeah. than the average. 
in both in those words i will try to say i prefer the bottom to go to the average because i prefer as an humanist that the bottom have the choice to live well and do things than the average uh, than the other scenarios i will i will stop here with a very simple question to you which is being, you know, having a, a human sense is important, but how good is humanity at this stage? I don't know. Remember, in the 1920s, we were working 70 hours a week. Today, if you happen to work in Holland, for instance, the average working hours a week is 29. So it's pretty much 40 hours less. What if we credit with 40 hours of, of, of leisure? Well, on average, people still watch three hours of TV a day, times seven. That means 50% of the time they watch TV <laughs> instead of practicing sports, instead of discovering new tools, discovering, talking to friends, go back to university, read books, you know, get to new things. And that's also the challenge of these words, which is it's over to lose, but it's a, a great way to continue the world. It's actually to continue the discovery process and the like. And that's what I like in my job, is a continuous process of discovery and fun. I, I love that example, and I guess that brings us to the question about progress, right? It's such a yes. human construct. We always talk about progress, and some people say, yeah, we're making huge progress because if you look at the data, infant mortality rate is down, uh, we're working less, uh, life expectancy is longer. But there are also people who say human beings have not become happier. Uh, you know, like the modernity has really enslaved us and all that stuff. So, so what, what are kind of the benchmarks you use uh, to measure progress? How would you define it? Um, besides being the optimist or pessimist, do you think we fundamentally made progress as, as a humanity? Or do you think we're just kind of... I think it's a personal question from, a, from a, 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 a business point of view. I would say I'm using my own tools that are the economic welfare, uh, from the economic welfare, the numbers tells you that we are going up. Uh, from a psychological uh, element, I don't know. <laughs> I think what people need is purpose. And, uh, uh, and it's difficult to get purpose if you have no time, if you have no skills, if you're not happy in life and the like. And that's something which you know, psychology or psychologists are trying to, to measure these days. Uh, uh, and the markers of that, I don't know enough about them, but when I look at them, I'm also like you, saying, not so sure uh, that people are much more happier than before. Now, again, uh, this is a metaphysical question, uh, and maybe on the next podcast, the day I will become, uh, you know, so talented in metaphysics, I can answer the question. <laughs> But at this stage, my point is, uh, yes, you're right. Uh, I'm looking at the world with a set of tools. Uh, everything that we say at MGI is based on a set of metrics and tools. We're looking at from a, a, a socio-business economics point of view. That's one way of looking at the world. Uh, there are many other ways to look at the world. So I encourage everyone to basically look at the that intersection of science and that intersection of science today uh, is where actually university is the best place for that's cross bridge of the different activities and, and science to make sure we get an answer to that question but at, at this stage i ill 
designed to answer the question whether you know the world is is happier today than it was yesterday. Uh, as a follow up to that question, how do you see the world shaping up in the very, very, very long term? We're talking about 50, 100 years down the line. You mentioned AI. Um, do you see a society where tech is everywhere? People just, there's not much friction uh, in terms of. Okay. Uh, again, it's, it, it, it's a personal question. I would start with a very simple fact. Every, everyone who does a prediction is born to fail. 90% uh, of the predictions are, are, are failing. So I, I resist the prediction per se, but, but, but you can make two types of, of prediction then. One is a purely logical one. It seems to me inevitable that, but I don't know the timeline, that one day we're going to have to be out of this planet and we'll have to find a second planet simply because the way we deplete resource, uh, the number of people we have, and this universe is so large, uh, one day we will go somewhere else. You know, for me, from a logical point of view, I just don't see, you know, why not? Now we've, we have not found a way to do it, and, 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 and maybe it will take centuries or whatever, but uh, to me, I think, from a logical point of view, I think that's, uh, that's a prediction that's gonna be there. Uh, the other way to do a prediction is to look at uh, what do I have to believe for these words to, uh, to happen. Uh, and we have done a bit of that simulation exercise a few times now in McKinsey and MGI. And again, it really depends on what actions people will take. But if we continue with the same trend, it's quite inevitable that we will face ecological problem. Uh, technology can solve or not solve. Again, it's not good or bad, but technology will continue to solve problems, okay? Will possibly create bad problems too. It's always the same. But, but the consequence of what you have to believe on that is that, in fact, we are not as civilized and, and so, uh, good as what we believe we are. If we look at all the problems that we have created in terms of economics of pollution, uh, in terms of uh, inequality and the like, uh, I'm quite sure just, you know, uh, we are maybe the middle age, the middle age versus the 250 or the 2100, I don't know. But it seems to me That's that a again, point. it's, it's a fascinating point. You know, we always look at, as we are the brightest and the most evolved, I'm just worried when people will look at of course. Uh, at me uh, in, in 50 years and say, yeah, what was this guy uh, yeah. thinking at that time? <laughs> you know, look at how the world has changed in the life. So I think part of humanity is that, is that the world will change. That's a prediction I can, I can tell you uh, uh, from all the logical point of view. And, uh, and it can change fast. And that's what history has told us. You know, remember, China was a superpower for a long, long time discovered so many things in the Middle Age. At the time, we were not that connected with the, the world. Uh, lost it a certain time, uh, and now has decided to come back. Now, if you look at Europe, you know, a country like Portugal was at the front end of so many discoveries. Today is one of the, one of the weakest links of Europe. 
Okay? So you see that in 200 years, you can go low. Think about Latam. They were a civilization like the Mayan. So it changed quite a lot. So I think it's sort of important to think about problems that are civilization-driven than problems that are self-centered-driven. And I think uh, uh, where uh, the problems that we look at, like uh, uh, ecology, depletion of resources, I think these are fundamental uh, uh, humankind element of problems that are more important than sometimes you know, should we increase or decrease the marginal rate of taxation so that I can go on holiday or not? Because that's very self-centered to what we are today versus what fundamentally is the humankind in society. And so I also believe these problems are more fun, more complex, but they will be the one, given the ecosystem, that will drive the system. I guarantee you that whether we agree or not, in a world where there is five Celsius more of temperature, it would be a very different world. So whether you believe or not, my question is the resilience. If it happens, what do you do? It's maybe a more important question that what happens if tomorrow morning, you know, I would love to get the same vacation as you because you have put two pictures of you in a great Bali uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 trip. Uh, than anything else, which today is sometimes the discussion we have in social media versus the final question about what kind of world will we be living in a few years' time. Uh, so the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. I really I have to it. ask you at the very end sure. of our show, what, what's the punchline here for, for you? Well, the, the, the punchline here is really uh, we, are in the uh, we are in the middle of complex problems, but complex problems are only complex because of the flavor of what we are. Complex problem were already existing you know, 500 years ago. Was the, 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 the heart flat or round? It was a fundamental question of that time. So problems were complex. Today they look not complex because we know, this, we know the answers. So the punchline here is to say uncertainty is actually not increasing. Uncertainty is actually a symptoms of the more we know, the more you realize we don't know enough. And what policy needs to basically play on is to recognize that in a world of increasing information, there is much more possibility to know the unknown versus the past, which creates fascinating disruption or fascinating progress. And what policy making is all about is to be accustomed to the fact that that uncertainty is challenging it raised the bar for policy because you need policy to be, or policy makers to be able to first understand the problem, to get at the center of the non-fake news of the problem, and to lead this change because these change are quite complex that they need leadership. So the punchline is whatever you look at, we need still policy making, we need more of that and we need much more leadership into that policy making, simply because in the world of digital, in the world of AI, in the world of good progress, lower information will surface much more problems to solve than in the past. So the life easy policy making is at the end. And there will always be uncertainty that sort of comes oh, along oh, with of our course. humanity.
And it's going to be more of that simply because you don't know what you don't know what's an easy life. Of course. You know, Stigler was saying uh, something slightly different, but he will look to your Gilpoli. Uh, 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 the best quiet life is a monopoly. And if you have, you don't know anything, <laughs> and you're a baby, and the only thing you know is the face of your parents, life seems good anytime you see the face of your parents as a baby. Of course. <laughs> but now we are challenging the world simply because we have much more information. This is distributed much broader, sometimes fake, sometimes good. Uh, and that challenge creates natural uncertainty, not because uncertainty is higher, is because it simply creates transparency of, or not that good we are, in the sense there are so many problems we haven't solved, which means words there's still a lot to progress. So your question of progress is that one. We actually very good in what we have known, we are still very bad in what we don't know. And that's what I think digital and technology allude to. It shows us a lot of the weakness, a lot of the unknown, and that means in that words, yes, policymaking is actually not to be downgraded. It has to be upgraded with the right politician, the right leaderships and the like. And I think we are maybe not making that equation as robust as it could be if I look at the politics of today. Thank you so much. This is such fascinating, wonderful insight. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for your time. I hope that it was a useful discussion oh, for you. It was fascinating. And, uh, we can talk, I can, as you can see, I can talk about it for quite a long, long yeah, time. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I wish this could continue, but I know you have to go bring your insights to more students. Okay, yeah. thanks. Thank you so much for joining us today. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Uh, visit policypunchline.com for more information and our updates. Uh, so this is currently during our summertime, so our updates might be a little bit uh, erratic and less frequent uh, than usual, uh, but we're working very, very hard to make sure that uh, we uh, keep up publishing stuff every, uh, every week. So really appreciate you following us, and please continue supporting us on policypunchline.com. Thank you for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.